welcome to another Gathering Gain Prophecy Times podcast. We are in episode seven, uh, looking at Revelation chapter six today. Uh, loving being back for a second week after a break, and uh, we are right in Revelation chapter six. So uh, without any further ado, we're just going to dive straight in and uh, spend the next 20 minutes or so um, picking apart Revelation 6. So open your Bibles and turn with me uh, to that place, please. Now, by way of introduction, uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 19 is the divine outline for the book of Revelation. Uh, we, we see the... We see John being told to write what he has seen or what you have seen, which is chapter one. He's told to write the things which are, which is chapter two and three. That's the, uh, the letters to the churches, everything that takes place during the church age. And he's told to write the things which takes place after these things or after this. And that is Revelation chapter 4 onwards. Everything that takes place after the church age. And so Revelation 4 and 5, we've looked at over the last uh, couple of podcasts. And, uh, and we see the picture move from earth uh, up into the throne room in heaven. And what we see there is that the church is there. The church is no longer on the earth. The church represented by the 24 elders, is in heaven. We see the scroll uh, that is still sealed at this point. We talked about the scroll last week. And we saw the line, of Ju- the line from the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, being revealed as the only one worthy to open the scroll. And now the view returns back to earth, still in the realm of looking at the things which take place after the church age. So keep in mind, we're looking future now. Um, We're looking at things that have not yet taken place. Now, for those people who try to argue that much of Revelation has already taken place, the interesting thing about that is there are no two commentators that are in agreement with the exact events uh, that have supposedly taken place at a time in history. Uh, there's no two commentators that are in agreement on that fact. There is, in fact, no events that have happened in the, fa- in the past that you can actually line up with what takes place in Revelation uh, 6 through 19. In fact, what we're looking at here as you uh, read the Bible from Genesis through Le- Revelation is what we're looking at here is the commencement of Daniel's 70th week. The 70th week or the 70 weeks prophecy um, spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, I think verses 24 through 27. And in verse 27 of Daniel 9, you get to the 70th week, which comes after an interval. That interval is the church age of Revelation 2 and 3. So here we find the commencement of Daniel's 70th week, which is the seven-year tribulation period uh, spoken of uh, throughout Scripture. And, uh, and so that's what kicks off here in Revelation 6. Now, the, uh, the other thing that I want to mention at this point is that uh, 
from Revelation 6 through Revelation 19, we find a, uh, and I'm going to say this word wrong, heptatic structure. So we find a structure of sevens that take place uh, in the judgments that Christ brings upon the earth. So we have the, the seals, the seal trumpets, uh, sorry, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And they come in that order. Now, there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. What's interesting is that uh, the seventh seal unrolls the seven trumpets. So the seventh seal judgment is the seven trumpets. So then we get into the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet uh, is the seven bowls and then we get into the seven bowl judgments so that's kind of how it works now what's interesting again is that as we read through uh, revelation we go through the first six seal judgments and then we get what's called a parent parenthesis parenthesis oh, it's like a bracket there's like a pause uh, in the timeline so to speak uh, we we go through the six uh, seal judgments, then there's a pause and it highlights something else that's happening uh, at that time. And then we get to the seventh seal judgment, which opens the seven trumpets. Now, we, go th we then go through the first six trumpets and there's another pause in the chronological story. And the text highlights a number of other things that are happening through that time. And then we get the seventh trumpet. Then we go through, uh, obviously the seventh trumpet opens up the seven, uh, seven bowls. And then as we're going through the first six bowls, at the end of the sixth bowl, we get another pause. And it, uh, it highlights something else that's happening through that time. And then we get the seventh um, bowl judgment. So we get seven seals with a break in between six and seven. We get seven trumpets with a break in between six and seven, and we get seven bowls with a break in between six and seven. The break in the seven seals is in Revelation chapter seven, which we'll look at next week. The break in the seven trumpets is between chapters 10 and 14, and the break in the seven bowls is a portion of Revelation chapter 16. So that's how uh, chronologically it's laid out and, and how we're going to look at Revelation as we go through. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The other cool thing about Revelation uh, and the portion that we're going into now is we keep alternating between a scene in heaven and then things that are taking place on earth. In heaven, on earth, and back and forth all the while we go through these seven seals, trumpets, and bowls. Okay, now uh, we're going to start at chapter one, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6 in a second. But before I do, I just want to refer you down to verse 8. So hopefully you've got your Bibles open by now. Verse 8 of uh, Revelation chapter 6. Now I'm going here initially just to highlight something for you. Because the first four seals... Uh, what is known as and people refer to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, Revelation chapter 6 verse 8 says this, So I looked and behold a pale horse, which is the fourth one, and the name of him who sat on it was Death and Hades followed with him. Now, 
I'm highlighting that for this reason. These horsemen are used here symbolically of literal things that are taking place. Obviously, death in Hades is not the rider riding the horse. The rider riding the pale horse is representative of a literal judgment that takes place during this stage of the tribulation period. So I highlight that to show you that these four horsemen we're looking at are referring to specific judgments that take place and those judgments that take place are explained and elaborated on uh, as we read through this chapter. But they seem to be not literal riders on horses, uh, but rather are symbolic of literal events. And verse 8 is kind of the key to make sure that we understand that that's what take, is taking place here. We're still interpreting these things literally, understanding symbols in light of what Scripture teaches us and how it points to literal events that take place. All right, Revelation 6, verse 1. Here we go. That was a big introduction. Sorry about that. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like, like thunder, Come and see. Here we go. And this is the first, uh, first seal. And it's to the, this judgment is about conquering or being conquered. Verse 2, And I looked and behold a white horse. Now, I'm just going to pause there. White horse. Uh, obviously, horses are being used uh, as a symbol of something. Um, but white horse is, uh, is it, it's an interesting one. There, there, is, there is a judgment associated with this. There's a conquering associated with this. If you flash forward to uh, Revelation 19, uh, we also see another rider on a white horse. And that rider in Revelation 19 is in fact the Christ, uh, Jesus Christ. And what we notice and have noted at other times about that is that at Jesus' first coming, he came riding on a donkey, which means he was coming for uh, peace, coming for peace and in peace. In Revelation 19, he comes on a white horse, which means and is representative and, and what took place in those cultures at that time is that if the king came on a white horse, he was coming for war and for judgment. That's what that highlights. Okay, so uh, here we have a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So this ju first judgment is about a conquering that takes place on the earth, not just in one region, but a conquering that takes place throughout the earth, not the entirety of it, um, as it seems as we read other parts, but a large portion of the earth. Now, what's interesting is that this rider on the white horse has a bow and a crown. First of all, the bow. Now, the bow uh, is interesting. That word, first of all, we'll look at it this way, that word bow is the same word that's used. Uh, obviously, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. New Testament is Greek. But when the Old Testament was translated 
into Greek, which is the Septu Septuagint or something like that. Pronunciation is not a strong suit of mine. Uh, when, so when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Greek word that um, got translated, that is at the time of Noah's flood and the rainbow that uh, God sent, that word rainbow in the Greek is the same word that's used here for bow that the rider is carrying. Um, so that's interesting. We're conjecturing here, but could it be that uh, there's a, a reference to a, a, binding, a reference to a covenant, if you will, the rainbow, a covenant between God and man, and uh, this bow here uh, being a covenant that is brought and confirmed or affirmed by the Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation period, the seven-year peace treaty that is put in place that includes Israel. So it could be a reference to that, which is interesting. But the other thing that's interesting is that the bow, there's no arrows. Um, there's, there's no weapons of warfare. There's just the bow. And, uh, and so it hints at a conquering that takes place without war, a conquering that takes place by deception, by pol political gain or financial gain or um, or whatever means, uh, but by means other than war. So we have uh, the Antichrist. So this, um, I should say, I'll take it back a step. I should say that there are a few different uh, conjectures around who this uh, represents or what this represents. Some people think it's Jesus uh, and this can't be so uh, because it's first of all it's the judgment and it's the beginning of the tribulation Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation Revelation 19 uh, secondly uh, the judgment associated with it um, it's uh, it's coming just before uh, wars and famine and deaths and that sort of thing and it it doesn't the, the implication it doesn't line up uh, nicely. Uh, the other interesting thing is that Jesus is the one opening the seals in heaven. Uh, he can't be both opening the seals in heaven and riding a horse on earth um, at the same time, or be you know be be in heaven but doing that thing on earth at the same time. All of that said, it's not Jesus. The text doesn't uh, imply Jesus. Some argue that it's uh, the gospel going out conquering the world again doesn't seem to fit with with one judgment being that the gospel is conquering and then the next three judgments being uh, war famine and death again doesn't really line up in the text uh, the the most likely thing biblically that this first judgment is representing is the revealing of the antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation period uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, um, Daniel 9, verse 27. Time and again, we see uh, the Antichrist being revealed at the beginning of this seven-year period. And this is what we're looking at right here. The other interesting thing in terms of delineating between Christ and the Antichrist, keep in mind that the Antichrist does everything he can to imitate Christ. 
hence the white horse. Um, uh, you know, Revelation 19, Jesus riding on the white horse. Here we go at the start, the Antichrist riding a white horse. Um, uh, but the crown that he's wearing is interesting. Uh, I should say before I go on, I, I keep flashing to Revelation 19. Uh, Revelation 6.1 here, this is using uh, kind of symbolic language to represent a judgment. Revelation 19, I would argue, is not symbolic language. I would argue that is uh, describing that which is literally taking place. Jesus riding on a white horse coming down from heaven. So I think I just want to clarify that. Uh, and obviously the key here is verse 8. Now, um, the other thing relating to the crowns is interesting. So the crown here that's being worn in uh, verse 2 is a victor's crown, one who, um, when uh, they are victorious in uh, games, so to speak, uh, they receive this victor's crown. Uh, whereas in Revelation 19, the crown that Jesus, or the crowns that Jesus is wearing, uh, are called diademas, and they are rulers' crowns, or the crown of a sovereign, uh, of a monarch, one who is in charge. So the crowns are very different and I think they highlight very different things. So anyway, first judgment, first seal, the revealing of the Antichrist who comes to conquer not through war um, but through intrigue and political means and he um, ushers in a covenant of uh, peace between certain nations which includes Israel, a seven-year peace treaty. That is uh, the seal number one. Verse three, when he opened uh, the second seal, he being Jesus, opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see another horse, fiery red this time, went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. Okay, so the bow with no arrows is exchanged for a sword. The, the white horse is exchanged for a red horse. Red being war and blood and death. Now what's interesting biblically is during this time, uh, at some stage in, in this picture, uh, the Ezekiel war has to happen. The Ezekiel war being uh, the war... Uh, written about in Ezekiel chapter 38. That has to happen thereabouts around the rapture period, uh, most likely after the rapture, most likely after the revealing of the Antichrist. Um, but very much in this vicinity, the Ezekiel war has to happen. Equally, uh, we have the Antichrist uh, conquering and taking control of the more of the Western world, the Western alliance versus what we see in the, um, in the Bible as the kings of the East or the Eastern world that eventually will come against the Antichrist during the tribulation period. So this, uh, this rider on the red horse, we see the judgment of war that takes place war that takes place on the earth where many people should kill one another. That is judgment number two. Number one, Antichrist conquering through 
means other than war. Number two, war comes into play. Uh, third seal, verse five. When he opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now this is interesting. A denarius is um, or was uh, about a day's wages. So a man was to work a day's wages and would receive a denarius. Now for a, da a day's wages, he can either get a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. Now this is not very much. What we're talking about here is a scarcity of food, which is interesting. It's a big famine, it's a global famine. But what makes it particularly interesting is that last statement of uh, verse six, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The oil being um, both literally uh, a, a refined, a fine and expensive product, but also representatively of all the other kinds of um, uh, luxurious products uh, and, uh, and the wine, liquor. So what's fascinating is that uh, it's hard to come by food, but there's still wine and other luxurious products like oil, which seems to suggest there's a, um, a wide gap between the haves and the have-nots. Have the rich seem to be able to survive this war, uh, this famine okay, but the poor seem to not be able to get hold of the food they need to feed their families. And this is the judgment number three, uh, not the disparage between the two, but the global famine. And then the people of the earth, the rich ones are, are taking advantage of and keeping in control of some of those things. Um, and I would argue that the Antichrist is one of the key figures in that who are keeping control of the earth's resources and food supplies, etc., etc. Judgment number three, famine. Third rider of the, uh, or th third horseman of the apocalypse. Fourth horseman, verse seven, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades or hell followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth. Now this is interesting. Power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. A couple of things. First of all, um, death and Hades as the riders. Obviously, death being that which is the end of the body, and Hades being that which deals with the soul. Right? These guys are not going to heaven. They're not going to paradise here. Um, death and Hades are dealing with body and soul over how many people, over what portion? One fourth of the earth, and we'll come back to that. And how are they doing it? To kill with the sword, with hunger, and it says with death uh, in my New King James translation, but if you look at that a bit closer in the Greek, it means pestilence or disease. Um, and uh, so it's 
with sword, with hunger, with pestilence or disease, and by the beasts of the earth. These are the four means by which uh, one-fourth of all the earth are killed and taken to Hades, to hell. Now, just wanna, want you to think about the, um, the disaster of this, how awful this will be. Right now, the world population is about 8.1 billion people in 2024, about 8.1 billion. Now, if you do a, a bit of research on the Christian population throughout the world, um, the global Christian population of that 8.1 billion is about 2.5 billion. So there's about 2.5 billion Christians in the world. I say Christians um, uh, loosely because it's uh, representing Christians. So it's, it's the ones who would claim to be Christian. But we know as we look around the church, and we know biblically, especially in these times, not everyone who is in the church is the church. Now, that 2.5 billion people, half of those are Catholics. And we know that the majority of Catholics are not necessarily believers. Many Catholics are born again, evangelistic believers, 100%. But Catholics as a Catholicism as a religion is not Christianity. So of that 2.5 billion, how many are actually Christian? We don't know. I say this to say, if there's 8.1 billion people in the world, if the rapture happened today, let's say, let's be generous. Let's say 2 billion of those two and a half, which is ridiculous. It won't be anywhere near that. But let's say 2 billion is Christian. You're left with 6 billion people on the earth after the rapture. So during the tribulation period, you've got 6 billion people on the earth. And this fourth judgment, this fourth seal, will destroy, will wipe out, will kill one-fourth of all living people on the earth. That is 1.5 billion people will be wiped out in this fourth judgment through sword, through hunger, that is war, famine, pestilence, and beasts. One-fourth, 1 1.5 billion people will be wiped out in this judgment. Now is the time of salvation. Don't wait around until after the rapture. Don't wait around until the tribulation period. Don't, don't think, oh, I'll, I'll, we'll deal with Jesus later. Don't do that. Now is the time of your salvation. Verse 9, we get to the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, now this scene here, we've, we've flashed the first four judgments are happening on earth. Seal 5 um, is happening on, as in the events of seal 5 is happening on earth, but we're getting the picture from heaven. So it's a scene in heaven and it's the scene of the persecuted or of the martyred people who have followed Christ. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. couple of things. First of all, the church is in heaven before the first seal got opened. So this is not talking about the church. This is talking about tribulation saints. That is 
people who come to faith in Jesus Christ during the seven year tribulation period who get martyred for their faith. A couple of other um, ways in which the text affirms that. First, first of all, uh, uh, they don't yet have resurrected bodies. It says the souls of those who had been slain uh, are there. So they're not yet in their resurrected bodies. The church does have their resurrected bodies. The second thing is, because uh, we see that in Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, the second thing is that, uh, where are they? Where is this group of people? Where are their souls? Are they by Christ's side? Are they... Uh, in the throne room doesn't seem to be they're under the altar where is that we don't know but they're certainly not by Christ's side where the bridegroom will be they're under the altar so this is interesting so they're not the church we know they're not the church but what this also tells us and this is wonderful news that there are many people who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. Many people during that period will be saved. We don't want anyone to wait till then. We want them to come to faith in Christ now so that they don't experience this. If you think it's hard to be a Christian now, in government, in schools, in your workplace, in your community, if you think it's hard now, particularly in certain places around the world, it's going to be far more difficult during the tribulation period. Why? Because all Christians uh, will be, there'll be like a wanted poster for Christians and the consequence is death. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower after Christ, the consequence of that is death during the tribulation period. Verse 10, And this group of people under the altar cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're saying, How long, Lord, will it be before your return, before you'll put an end to all these unjust murders that we had to experience? Verse 11, Then a, then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. Just be patient until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Jesus says here, there are going to be more saints who will be murdered. He doesn't want that, but he's saying his judgments are not yet done. And unfortunately, that means that more will be murdered for their faith. More souls who are martyred during the tribulation period will appear under the altar awaiting their resurrection uh, after Jesus' return. Verse 12, we get, we get the sixth seal. So first seal is the revealing of the Antichrist who comes and conquers the world through intrigue and, intrigue and political gain. Second seal is war that comes upon the earth. Third seal is global famine. Fourth seal is death for a quarter of the earth's population at that time. Fifth seal is uh, the martyrdom of true followers of Christ during that time. And the sixth seal is dramatic cosmic changes that take place on the earth and in the heavens at that time. Verse 12, I looked 
when he opened the sixth seal and be, behold, there was a great earthquake. Now this, the way it's written, it's written as in the great earthquake, earthquake um, is almost like a catalyst for the, the next few things that we, we see. So there is a great global earthquake. It is not a local earthquake and it leads to this. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. So this global earthquake is so disastrous, so horrific that whatever it shakes and whatever it causes upon the earth will go into the atmosphere, turning uh, what we see to be the sun to be as black as sackcloth and ashes and the moon by night to be red as blood, similar to what we might see when there is smoke and fire in the air, but on a much bigger, much more global scale. Verse 13, and the stars of heaven, which is referring to asteroids. So we're talking about some kind of uh, meteorite um, shower of some kind. The stars from heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Now, a fig tree dropping its late figs shaken by by a mighty wind. Are we talking one or two figs? No, we're talking heaps of figs. So this meteor shower, whatever this uh, is, these signs coming from heaven, these meteors coming from the sky, there's going to be heaps of them that are going to be pounding the earth at the same time as this um, global cosmic earthquake. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. There are going to be cataclysmic events and signs in heaven that shake the foundations of the earth during this time. This is the sixth seal, the sixth judgment. And and it's going to be so bad on the earth. Read this next bit, verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of mountains. There is no escaping these cosmic events that will come upon the earth. And said to the mountains, these are the this is everyone on the earth saying to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of what? From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. All will know that God is doing this. They will know that he's doing this. And they will ask the rocks and the mountains to hide them. What's interesting here is, and uh, Chuck Smith noted this, and I find this pretty funny, um, uh, the term wrath of the lamb, we understand that, but it's a bit of an oxymoron, isn't it? We don't ever say, beware of the fierce lamb. We don't ever say that in real life, do we? Um, but we know that the lamb is a picture of the Messiah, who at this time is coming for judgment. And this is all part of the wrath of the, of the lamb. This is part of the, the godly wrath that will come upon an ungodly world. What do we know about the wrath of the Lamb? What do we know about the wrath of God? 
that the believer is not appointed to the wrath of God. Another evidence for the fact that we will not be here during the seven year tribulation period. Verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? No one will escape this period of time. There is only one escape right now. And that is for you to repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you do that now, you will escape as Revelation 3, 10 and 11 says, I think it's 10 and 11, you will escape through by means of the rapture. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ now, you will escape the very hour of these trials and tribulations that will come upon the world at this time. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ this day. Thanks so much for joining us for another Prophecy Times podcast. We hope and pray that it has been a blessing for you uh, in your understanding of the word, in your understanding uh, of what's to come and in your understanding of the urgency of our need to put our faith in Jesus Christ this day. Um, Looking forward to seeing you again next week, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Much love and...